Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. This morning, we're going to start chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. This is a little bit longer chapter, a little bit fuller chapter, definitely not one we can do in one day. So we will try and look at the first 12 verses, though. That's kind of the section that we're going to look at today. So as we begin, thank you for being here on a different day. It's good to good to still not. I didn't want to miss. They had the funeral yesterday here at the church, and I knew that would be difficult timing. To They needed to reuse this room for other things. Let's begin, if you have your prayer cards, let's ask the Lord's blessing here as we begin to study His Word. Pray with me. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. As we were praying that, I was just noticing the phrase, You, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. I like that. When, uh, hi guys, when John Chrysostom wrote this prayer, who it's attributed to, I like the fact that he included and our souls and bodies. In fact, that's going to come out in our in our study this morning. Christianity is definitely not just an intellectual faith. Okay? We make a mistake, a grave we make a grave mistake if all we think of Christianity is a faith to be believed in. It is a faith to be transformed by and lived out. It's an active life. It's an active faith. And that includes a bodily active faith. So the connotation on the body is so important. In all of Christianity, the connotation on the body is so important. Um, The very word to worship is actually a word that speaks of active movement of your body, like kneeling or bending or prostrating. That's true in the Hebrew and in the Greek. So uh, this, I, I love that in that prayer. It just kind of struck me as we were praying. Yes, Lord, light of our souls and bodies. So as we begin, let's look at chapter 4. This is definitely, without a doubt, uh, one of the clearest calls to holiness that we have in Scripture. The Apostle Paul lays it out beautifully here. And so, and this, and remember, we're, we're studying and reading the first letter that we have of the Apostle Paul. First Thessalonians is there. Of the letters that we have, this is considered to be the very first one. Now, it doesn't mean it was the first one he ever wrote. It's just the first one we have of the ones that are, you know, were kept through antiquity and found and recorded and put into Scripture. So very early teachings of the Apostle Paul, clear call to holiness. So let's read these 12 verses, and then we'll discuss. 
Finally, brethren, we beseech and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from unchastity, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like heathens who do not know God, that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we solemnly forewarned you. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But concerning love of the brethren, you have no need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brethren throughout Macedonia. But we exhort you, brethren, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we charge you, so that you may command the respect of outsiders and be dependent on nobody. Let's stop there. Boy, there's a lot to talk about here, but let's begin with this thought of why the, the Apostle Paul is getting to the climax of this letter, why he is, he's now starting to teach them. First three chapters, remember, he's been kind of explaining himself again in his ministry there and why, you know, there's obviously been some attacks on his ministry, some bad things said about him, and he's uh, kind of laying that groundwork over again in the first three chapters, and now he's going to teach them a little bit. He, remember, he commended them. He was so excited to hear that their faith was still standing. But yet, there's some things that they're not quite getting or not doing or maybe being tempted with. And so he's going to write and instruct them. A big theme here, clearly, in connection with the call to holiness, is the call to uh, be moral. The call to... as it, the RSV that I was reading used to be free from unchastity. Now, as you look through the scripture with me, I want you to notice this first verse, a couple of things here. Let's begin. There's some really important words here that, that we're going to look at. And I didn't put all of there's There's probably a good half a dozen Greek words we need to look at to really understand the scripture this morning. I didn't put them all on the board, but I put a few of them. But let's this, we begin with one that I didn't write down. In that very first verse, we see him saying, we beseech you and exhort you. We beseech and exhort. Those are not just synonyms for the same word, although sometimes they they get interchanged. Beseech, that's a word we don't use very often in modern English, is it? Uh, It's an old prayerful word. You read the Book of Common Prayer and it's all over the place. You know, we beseech you, O Lord. What does it mean to beseech? Anybody know what that word means? To ask, yeah. We, my but, Bible says urge. But to ask urgently. Okay, so not just to ask, but to ask with a special urgency and a, and a strong desire. So, we beseech you. Now, the Greek word here is erateo, erateo, which literally means, interestingly enough, to make a special request from a position of status. So it's not just a beseech you. If I say to you, Wes, just as an acquaintance, you know, I beseech you something, it's not going to have the same weight necessarily if we're just acquaintances as if I am your pastor or your teacher or your mentor or the one who planted the faith in you or the one, you know, there's this position, a status and a place from which Paul is making this appeal. And that word in the Greek language, erateo, is to tell them, it, it tells us that he expected a response 
because of who he was making this request. He's not, that's not to do with anything with pride or that's just the way the language worked. He knew his position and he knew in using that word. Because now the very next word where it says, and exhort you, is a Greek word that we've heard a lot actually in our studies, parakleo. We actually used that word last week. We came across that word last week. It was uh, uh, in chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2, when we were talking about, he said, uh, to establish you in your faith. And remember, we had a different word for establish. And to exhort you. Same word there, and to exhort you. And over here it says, and to exhort you. Beseech you and exhort you. That word parakleo, which, of course, the word for the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the paraclete, this idea of, of an exhortation. If we just talk about the word exhortation, what do we think of? If I say I exhort you all to study your Bible, what, what, is that, what am I doing by exhorting? Encourage. Yes. I'm not just asking you to, okay, with this, like that first word was, I'm encouraging you. I'm comfort. I'm giving you comfort. Do you know how good it will be for you if you will just do this? If you would just all read your Bible, do you know how good it would be for you? you that sort of thing, you know. Uh, he's beseeching them and he's exhorting them from a position of status, of respect, and knowing that he's expecting a response from them. But you'll notice right away that what he does is he's, he says, he qualifies that, that he's doing this in the Lord Jesus. Okay, it's not just Paul for Paul's sake. It's because we're all in the faith of the Lord Jesus. You, this is, a, this is a, a request, a special request in Christ's name, in other words. And then he says, as you learn from us. See that phrase in your, in your scripture? Mm-hmm. As you learn from us. On? I'm on verse 1 now. Okay, so look for that phrase that says, as you learned from us. I, ex- I beseech you and exhort you, you know, uh, in the Lord Jesus, that as you learn from us, this is a very important phrase, as you learn from us, to do what? How to live. How to live and please God. How many of you here want to learn how to live and please God? All hands need to go up. <laughs> I don't think you'd be here if you didn't want to learn how to live and please God, right? <laughs> That's that's the point of this chapter. He's going to teach them some of the most important elements of learning to live and please God. And he's beseeching them to do this. But he needs to do it as you learn from us. What is Paul saying by that little phrase, as you learn from us? How, How many of you are confident enough to go to your friends and say, I want you to learn to be a Christian. Dennis, Dennis, I want you to learn to be a Christian. Just like you, you learned from us, from me. Mm-hmm. You know, Are we that confident to tell our friends, hey, just, just do like we do? A while back we used that word imi- Im- that, that meant to imitate. Okay, and that word's actually going to come up later in this chapter. He's saying, ah, who's us? Him, whose three people are in giving a name for this letter, Paul. Timothy, Silas, or Silvanus, as some of your books say. These three, us, these are the ones that brought him the faith. There's also a sense in which he's saying from us, and we're reading this 2,000 years later, and we hear that us as who were the us? The apostles. It's an apostolic appeal. That becomes really big in this first, second Thessalonians. Paul makes it very clear. When we get to second Thessalonians, we'll talk about it more about this idea of apostolic teaching, apostolic tradition. This isn't just anyone. This is St. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, who wrote now, what, almost almost three-fourths of the New Testament. This is a pretty important teacher here. So as you learn from us, how to, you ought to live and please God. But then the next phrase, all these prepositional phrases are so important. What's the ne- just, what does he say in the next phrase? Just as you are doing. Now, Paul is a wise teacher. He knows that people are going to listen to him better if he is kind than if he's just scolding. Right? He's trying to exhort, remember the word was to comfort them, not to condemn them. 
He's teaching them in a manner. We're going to see all through this chapter, his style here is one of commending. And oh, by the way, okay, if I come to you, there's leadership principles. You know, there's a big buzzword in our culture, leadership principles and all these things and managerial styles. You know, one of the things you should never do is to uh, criticize without offering encouragement. You've heard that? You can understand that, can't you? I would rather hear the encouragement along with the criticism. Point out something good that they're doing, not just something wrong that they're doing. Okay. When I was in management, they told me to name five good things they were doing five. before you brought up that. <laughs> There's probably a, a good formula there somewhere. <laughs> so Paul's a wise teacher, and he knows they're going to hear him better if they don't just hear what they're doing wrong. Okay. Now, <laughs> so he's commending them. As you're doing... You guys are learning how to live as you ought. You're learning how to live this Christian life. You're learning from the example that we taught you, um, that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul always gives credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. He never says that I taught you without saying in the Lord Jesus or through the Lord Jesus. Beautiful example. It's not about the teacher. It's about the Lord. Every Christian teacher, every pastor, every preacher needs to learn that. Um, troubles me when I hear a sermon that has too many eyes in it. <laughs> I, 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 or me, me, me. You know, that's, that's not a good sign of the humility of the teacher. Now, so what is it that he wants to teach them? What is it that they need to learn to live as they ought to live? Well, it's all summarized in one word. And I put that word on your board. Hagiasmos. Hagiasmos. Okay. You, you, the G, if you're good Greek, if you're good at your Greek, the G's kind of silent. It's hagiasmos. You know, there's a little throat and the stuff going on there. Hagiasmos, which I'm not good at. But that word, literally, that is the word spelled out exactly as it would be in Greek for the word that's in your Bible that says in English, Sanctification. What is sanctification? It is hagiasmos. And what is the root of this word? This word, hagia. Haya, as some people say it in Greek, the hagia. You may know those first H-A-G-I-A. Does anybody know what that means? You ever hear that word? I've mentioned it a time or two just in, in scriptural study. If you remember, one of my favorite examples is to tell you the example. Have you ever heard of the Hagia Sophia? The Hagia Sophia, the church of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. That, that was one of the, it's one of the big wonders of the world. It's this incredible structure. Uh, you can look it up. Google it sometime. Look it up. Uh, it's not a church anymore, though, because it became the leading church of all Christendom. It was built in the time of the, when the empire was moved from Rome to the east, to Constantinople. And the city was named Constantinople after Constantine the emperor, who, the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. And one of the first things he did was commission the building of this church, the Hagia Sophia, which means holy wisdom. Sophia is wisdom in the Greek. Hagia or Hagia is holy. This means holy. Anytime you see that word, H-A-G-I-A, it means holy. Hagiasmos, what literally means the process of becoming holy. So we see in this very word sanctification, which, you know, as Wesleyans, as Wesleyan Christians, as Nazarenes, as, as those who follow the, uh, the, the teachings of a holiness movement, we should be really familiar with this word. Really familiar. We it's it's in this very it's in the next chapter, not in this chapter today, but within when we get into chapter five, we're going to talk about that word, entire sanctification, which is the cardinal doctrine of the holiness movement, as as uh, given, and by John Wesley, <clears throat> because those words actually come right out of this book in First Thessalonians chapter five verse twenty three. 
entirely, that God may sanctify you entirely. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. For now, let's just talk about the idea of sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It literally means a process of becoming holy. And what is, what is it that makes something holy? Why do we call things holy? They're from God. Because they're, maybe, maybe in one sense we could say from God, I think maybe even closer we could say for God. They're to be used, to be set apart for their holy or intended use for God. That's what makes things holy. God makes them holy. God is the sanctifier. Okay, He is the only one that can make us holy. But the way he makes us holy is by our learning to live as we ought to live, like Paul's telling the Thessalonians. And the way we now he's going to explain how you do that. How do we live as we ought to live? How can we live in such a way that God will literally make us holy? And not just a little holy, but eventually what we're going to talk about entirely holy. And he's going to call them right here at the end of that first verse. He says, just it was when he said to he commended them, just as you are doing, he said, and do so more and more. Notice that phrase. Twice he uses that in these 12 verses. He, a little later on, he's going to say, more and more. Obviously, it's a process. Okay? Christianity is not just, oh, I believe, now I'm done. It's a process of growth. Holiness is a process of growth as well. So we grow into this faith. Now, verse 3 leads us to the very answer. For this is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification, your becoming holy. And then colon, I've got to, if you look at the grammar here, colon, there's a separate thought here that's very important that clarifies the, early, the holiness. And what does Paul use to clarify holiness? He uses the phrase that you abstain from unchastity. Or in most versions, maybe sexual immorality. You see that? The word there in the Greek is this second word I put on the board. Porneus. Porneus. Clearly, you recognize the first four letters. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Porn. Okay. It's endemic in our culture, unfortunately. The word in and of itself, okay, the word in and of itself is not just, um, it's not just a negative, okay, not totally a negative. It can mean to view something, but it's usually become connotatively used in a negative way. Um and the idea here is he's, he's, he's exhorting them to away from sexual immorality to morality. Clearly, this is a problem. Or he wouldn't be writing it. I would say clearly it's probably their number one problem. Or he wouldn't be giving it such attention in this verse. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't clarify, you guys have a problem with stealing. You know, you got to quit stealing each other's stuff. He doesn't say, you know, you guys don't. Uh, you know, think of one of the Ten Commandments, you know. He doesn't even go into coveting stuff, although this relates to coveting. His point is, this is huge. And here we are 2,000 years later, <coughs> 2,000 years of Christian teaching on our earth. How many generations is that? I have no idea. And we still don't get it. Because the number one issue in sin, I think, immorality. Why? Why is this such a huge struggle? And why is it such a huge uh, comparison to holiness? Why is it the one that is, is the standard that's raised up as the opposite of holiness? Immorality and morality. What? It's how you do it. <clears throat> yeah, because sexuality in and of... sex and you're not married. Right. It's more or less... Something that two people between each other right. could share. And, right. I don't know. You could get into a whole different conversation on that one. Well, and we, and we will partly. You're right. Exactly, Jackie. Because the reality is sexuality is holy. So it's a problem when it goes beyond procreation. When it goes beyond God's boundaries. 
Okay. Isn't it like a covenant? <coughs> we make a covenant with God where we, you know, are one-on-one with him, and then, like, when you have your husband or make that commitment to that person, that's a covenant, too. Yeah. break that covenant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's huge. The, the idea of covenant is huge there. And I'm going to go even beyond it. I, I want to lead you guys into a thought. Human sexuality is mystical. It's not just nuts and bolts. Okay? It's not just... It's mystical. In the act of human sexuality, Scripture teaches us that the man shall leave his... Mother and it, and and the woman shall leave her and home. In other words, mother and father, and the two shall become one. flesh. One flesh. That's what the scripture says. <laughs> God, sh- God is the creator, right? <clears throat> We're the procreators. God's plan for the world was for to populate the world. Go forth and be fruitful. He told Adam and Eve. And the way he chose to do that was through giving his power, God's creative power in measure to these two human beings to go, therefore, and procreate. That's a, that is, that's a godly mystery, okay? We, we can't fully understand it. Could he chose something different? <laughs> Just, it's kind of gross. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think, Wes, I think part of the reason why we think that is because we're we're seeing it from, we're seeing it from the, how shall I say, from the side of unlightened, sinful eyes. Because we're born into this world, into a sinful world. And, and so we automatically don't understand. The whole. One of the first things that opened my eyes to this understand, to a, what I would consider a proper biblical understanding of human sexuality was, this, was when I read a book that was written by the late, great Pope of the Roman Church, John Paul II. John Paul II, one of the longest reigning popes in the history of the Catholic Church. His magnum opus, his his life's work of his 25-year papacy was a study on human sexuality. And he gave lectures every Wednesday in Rome when he was there, he, and he, he taught on it, and he, and he wrote all this, the voluminous works, that if we had the book that he wrote, it, it's about this thick. I'm, I'm holding my hands, hands about like six inches apart, okay? You know, it's bigger than War and Peace, okay? And, and it's also written on such an intellectual level, because the man was brilliant, okay, that I, I, I couldn't read it. Nobody. You, most of us just couldn't learn anything. It's just too deep for us. You ever get pick up one of those books where you just... You have to read the same page over and over because it's just so deep. You keep stumbling and not and following. Look every word up in the dictionary. Yeah, and you got to stop and look at it. That's right. So, so it's kind of like that. So, in the 1990s, or I, I may get my year wrong. It might have been the early 2000s. I can't remember what year it was written. Uh, a, a Catholic layman by the name of Christopher West decided to write a book called. Uh, and I hope I'm getting this. I know he wrote the third one. I think he wrote the second one, too. I could get this wrong. But it was the the, the name of the Pope's book, by the way. I didn't give it to you. It was The Theology of the Body. The theology. That's the study of God. That's what that word means. The study of God in the study of our body. And, and he brings it together. And, it, it, and so then they did another one that was called, uh, I can't remember the second book's name, where he basically synthesized the Pope's teachings down into a moderately thick book that more people could read. But then he realized even that wasn't getting through. So he wrote a great book, the book I read, and it was called The Theology of the Body for Beginners. <laughs> you know, in the, you could say for dummies. <laughs> okay, for beginners. You know, there's a, something for dummies, everything out there, that's why, you know. The Theology of the Body for, for Beginners. And in that book, What's amazing is, is the whole book's almost, it's not even about sex almost. It doesn't even get into physical graphic connotations. I mean, it's all about feeling, identity, who we are as created beings, how we relate to one another. I mean, I read it and it was like revolutionary when I read that book. I said, oh my goodness. 
I'm going to read this again. I've read it five or six times. I gave it, I, they came out with a version for teens, the theology of, of his body and the theology of hers body. It's one of those cool books that you can flip back and forth. You know, you read it one direction, it's for him, and you turn it over and start reading the other way, it's for her, it's a cool book. And I bought that and gave it to our kids to read. We have a boy and a girl. When they were teenagers. And I'm telling you, it is... A, <clears throat> one day I even brought it into a study I was doing, a Bible study, and, and I read a quote out of it. This has been several years ago. And I read a quote out of it, and I didn't tell people what the book was, or who wrote it? I just read it. And I said, what do you think of that? And you know what they said? I wish I could remember what page that was and everything. I, I don't have that. Would have done it to you today. It would have been a good little kind of a, an experiment. But I said, do you, what do you think of that? And you know what somebody said? Man, that's good holiness teaching there. That's what they said. That's good holiness teaching. And I, I said, guess who wrote it? And they're like, I don't know. who John Wesley or who? I said, Pope John Paul II. And they said, what? <laughs> they didn't know the Pope could write something like that. You know, we, we all have these it's preconceived not so conditions. It's about sex. It's more of a mental communication you have between two people without talking. <clears throat> it's, 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 they, I can't explain it. It's a mystery. I, can't ex- I could not even begin to explain it to you here. But here's, here's how I'm going to try to. If all we ever think of human sexuality is about the physical act, we miss the whole point. We missed the whole point. It's about the two become connections a good word. The two becoming one. Not even the two becoming one and of themselves, then that's two. It's the two becoming three. Now there's some modern math for you. Absolutely. In that moment, in that conjugal physical moment of sexuality between a husband and a wife sanctified in marriage, holy in marriage, holy and set apart, okay? Though that becomes, in that moment, they are closest to God, more present than, in a mystical way we can't even explain. The triune nature of the being is because God has shared his triune nature. I know this is heady stuff, okay? I know it's some, some of you, and those of you who are not married, it sounds like maybe, wow, I don't need to even think about this. We're not going to spend the whole hour on it. I'm just trying to dip your toes into the pool here. There is a deep thought. There's a reason why scripture connects immorality with ungodliness and morality with holiness and that the the useful example so often in scripture is about sexuality. And there's a big reason because it was a problem. It's always been a problem since sin entered the world And it always will be until heaven becomes earth and his kingdom comes in fullness. Because we are are witnesses of 2,000 years later of a culture messed up by sexuality. Messed up by wrongful understandings. And, And it does not help when a church or a generation, which has happened in modern times, or when I say modern times, the last few hundred years, basically repressed any teaching on it. And there are Christian movements that said, well, you shouldn't talk about that. There's just something that has to happen, you know. Nobody talked about it. I think it got really bad in the 2000 era. It was taboo. It was taboo, yes. So so that didn't help. Generations after generations have done that. So I bet you haven't heard a sermon on this topic in a long time. Maybe never. I don't know. Never. but, but I will tell you that it's, it, it's, it's necessary. So if you're curious at all, go get the book, Theology of the Body. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Now, to, to, to fill this out a little more, verses 4 and 5, he's expounding on this thought that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathens do. Uh, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. In other words, there was a problem in their culture. Sometimes people had wrongful passions. Okay, they, they had they they literally the the Greek word here. That's the third word I put on there. The for the where you're reading passion in your English Bible. What does anybody have anything other than passion in your English Bible? That's verse uh, five. 
Not in passion? Does anybody have something different there? I Just don't know how you pronounce it. Passionate lust. <clears throat> You're going to read the same thing. Oh, yes. King James? Yes. Yes, concupiscence. Concupiscence. Okay. An old English word for the same thing, for this idea of passion and lust. Yours says passion and lust. Passionate lust. Passionate lust. Yes. Lustful passion. Okay. Finding all these ways to say things. And what they're really saying is this Greek word right here. It's one word in Greek, pathos. Pathos. Sometimes people say pathos. You heard that word? It's a popular word. There's websites called pathos.com, all kinds of good stuff. Okay. But that word is the word that's used here. And that word is not necessarily a negative word. It's not passion, passionate lust. The word right here is not. There, there's no word lust like we would think of lust as a negative thing. It's not in this text. The word's just Greek, pathos. And that, that word literally means a strong emotion. Okay, a strong emotion. Um, see if I have something else here. Uh, it is, even has a connotation to suffering a strong emotion. Okay, experiencing something. So, really, we can experience it bad or we can experience good. <clears throat> Same way with human sexuality. We can experience it bad or we can experience it good. And he's saying clearly that they have a problem because he's comparing their passion to the passion of the heathens, the people that don't know God, the people that are coveting their neighbor's wives, those kind of things. So, clearly, this is a problem. And clearly, it's a problem today. So, we, we need to keep studying the word until we get it, don't we? Um, and he says in the latter half of verse 5, because, why, why is this so important? He just says it, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have so solemnly forewarned you. I think it's important for us to stop and note that the good apostle here is saying, my teaching was balanced. I taught you right from wrong. But at the same time, I warned you what happens with the wrong. There is, there is. He calls God an avenger here, okay? Um, and then we have to be careful with that because we can, all of a sudden, hear a lot of fire, fire and brimstone and God's angry wrath and the avenger. And we we need to put that in perspective, okay? God is love, but love does have. That's right. God, God is willing to, love is willing to put consequences into place. And that's where the avenger part comes in, okay? Because when we really step back from this text, we're seeing, what we're seeing is the way Paul's talking about complimenting them, and as you're doing. But do this and think of it this way. He's, he's applying the gospel of God to them as medicine for their illness of sin. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. And that's how the Christian faith was early understood in the ancient ways. The Christianity was a hospital for sinners. Christian, the Christian faith was like medicine to the sickness of sin. Not just, to use another Greek word, an ethos, an ethical creed to be believed. That if you don't, too bad, consequences. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's about relationship. Pathos even says relationship in it, that connotation. So it's important for us to see that he his teaching is balanced. He solemnly forewarned them. If I solemnly, why did he throw that adjective in there in our English, the solemnly? What? If I say that in English, I solemnly forewarn you, what am I trying to say by using the adjective solemnly? Seriously, that's correct. Good call. Good call. See, I can hear those little whispers back there. That's good. Shout it out. There's no wrong answers. We're all together here. Seri this is serious business. That's why this type of study of the Bible is so serious. We need to get this right. Because guess what? If we don't get it right, guess what we're doing to the next generation? We can't pass on the right faith unless we know the right faith. We can't pass on the right morals unless we know the right morals. We can't pass on, you know, we're going to pass something on either right or wrong. So it's solemn. This is solemn forewarning. And <clears throat> he says, and this is so important that what I want you to hear in verse, this is the apostle saying in verse 7, this is so important 
that if you don't regard this, if you don't pay attention to this, if you don't obey this, you're not disobeying me, man, Paul. You're disobeying God. That's what he says. This is a disregarding of God. He is just putting it out there. I'm not teaching you this. God is teaching you this. He's using me to do it. But the teaching is from God, not from Paul. Very important for us to see. So, (coughs) excuse me. What we're seeing here is a call to holiness. It's It's the call. It's what God created us for. It's why we're here. He didn't just, God didn't just set up human beings on earth as little toys and, and robots and uh, let's just see what they work out with the, with the world and creation. No, no, no. He created because he loved. And that's what love does. Love creates. Love always gives. And in that giving, he created. And in that creation, he gave them, which is us, through our ancestors, the ability to love also, but the ability to love freely. And so we do have a choice. We can disregard God. We can disregard this scripture. We can disregard Christianity. We can disregard it all if we want to. We have that choice because we are free moral beings. But just understand the cost. He solemnly forewarned us there's a great cost. And and, and so I, I want you to hear the call to holiness. I want Because we're, we're going to talk more about this because it, it encompasses much of the this chapter and the next chapter, what, what holiness is and what holiness looks like. Right now we're just kind of defining it. Okay? And the best example Paul uses is this example of morality versus immorality. Um, and, and I think it's good for me to caution here. Let me say this. Morality is always a matter of the heart. That's the same way with holiness, with faith. It's always a matter of the heart. You could be moral in your actions and not moral in your heart. It's possible to live this life maybe so afraid of God or afraid of the consequences that you don't want to commit any immoral actions. But you're really not doing it with the truth of your heart out of love for God. And that's, that's what he's setting up here. He's setting up the call to holiness because we're going to get to that when we talk about what it means to be entirely sanctified. Okay? So I don't want to get ahead of myself. But just understand we're getting deep into the teachings of holiness here. The last three verses today of this section, verses 9 through 12, <clears throat> the, the, good, the good apostle is, he is sharing with them, again, uh, he, he uses his style of commending them. He's going to talk, he's going to close out by talking about love. But concerning love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What is he saying there? You already know this. You already know this. Yeah. You're already doing this. Can you say it again? He's saying, the love you, by, but concerning the love of the brethren, you have no need to have anyone write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now what's interesting about it, he's saying, he, again, he's commending them. You're doing a good job at loving one another. But, there's always a but, okay? But as we take this apart, we will notice in the Greek that he uses two different words for love. In the first phrase, in verse 9, he says, for the love of the brethren. That is literally the word Philadelphia. You know, like in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, phila, brotherly love. Adelphia is a Greek word for brothers or cousins or family, okay? So brotherly love, that is a type of love that is often used in scripture. So he says, you're doing that. You don't have any reason for anyone to write you about that. For you've been taught by God to... Agape one another is what he said to them. So when they're reading this, they read Greek. They know how to read Greek. They're saying, oh, we're doing a good job at this, but actually God taught us to do that. There's actually a teaching in his commendation to them. What I really want you to do is to agape one another, to love one another unconditionally, because that's what God is teaching you. Brotherly love is wonderful. It's where all things begin. 
But we're called as Christians to go beyond brotherly love. We're called to go to unconditional love. That's what agape is, the unconditional love of God for humanity. And we're to have that for each other. So he says, and indeed you do love all the brethren throughout Macedonia. Macedonia is where they live. That was called Greece today. We would call it Greece. Although there is a little nation called Macedonia up in the north. But you know what's interesting about this? That word love there again. Okay, so I immediately went to my Greek and I started to look up which word did he use for love there. And guess what? It's not even in the Greek text. Does your Bible say love there? Look at verse 10. And indeed you do love all the brethren. Does your say love there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not in the Greek text. You know what the Greek text says? It says, and indeed you do this. <laughs> the English translators, again, were trying to be a little more clear. Do this. Well, okay, what is this? Okay. That begs the question, what is this? What did he mean? So they just put in love in English. Well, that begs the question, what love? What kind of love? We don't know because the text doesn't say this. So I think clearly we're always called to the highest form of love. Clearly. Um, So again, we exhort you. There's that word to exhort again. We exhort you, brethren. Again, this is the second time he says, do this more and more. Now, I'm going to close with 11 and 12 right after I say this. This more and more. Don't neglect that thought. Everything that... Apostle Paul is teaching them is something they should not just, they're not going to master it in one take. They're not going to even master it in a short while. Do it in ever increasing measure. How do we become all that God is calling us to be? We, we keep pursuing holiness in ever increasing measure, more and more. And that's a theme throughout a lot of uh, scripture. So finally then, the way he's going to tell them to do this in verse 11, to aspire, he's going to give them a threefold life. Let me give you the three things. I didn't write them on the board. Um, I'm coming to this last word too. Um, He's going to say, do this more and more. To aspire to live quietly. There's number one, live quietly. Number two, to mind your own affairs. Number three, to work with your hands. As we charged you, there's a little phrase, as we charged. So that's what he's reminding them. This is what we taught you. This is when Paul went to, when he was planting churches and when he was sharing the faith of Christ, the gospel, he taught people three things. Christians do these things. They live quiet, simple lives. They mind their own business. Okay. And they work. Clearly, these are all things that have been a problem. That's why he chooses to write about them. And that's going to come out more as we go through these next uh, chapter and on into chapter 2. The one about work becomes a real big issue in, in not chapter 2, but book 2. Uh, so, threefold life. To live simple lives. What does it mean to live quiet lives or simple lives? You know, we're, we, you know, I think you could probably define that a lot of different ways, but to me, at the, at the essence, it means that I need to be satisfied with the life that God has given me and not always wishing I were someone else or more important or trying to become more important. You know, it's not about me. It's about a simple, quiet life, and there is the call to humility. We hear that all through the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus, that's the heart of the gospel as Jesus teaches, the life of humility. The life of a Christian is to be the life of humility. I like what John Wesley wrote on 411. Read it. Uh, That ye study, literally that you be ambitious, and ambition worthy of a Christian, to work with your hand, not a needless caution, for for temporal concerns are often a cross to them who are newly filled with the love of God. Yeah. So ambition, but ambition to work. Ambition to work for your... Be worthy of for your faith and to be worthy for this humble life. Um, This is so important. Um, He's saying this is what we charge you with. And by doing that, in verse 12, he says, so that you may command the respect of outsiders. So that you may command the respect of outsiders, people outside the Christian faith. I think Jesus said, so that let your light shine before men so that they may see your 
good works. Notice he didn't say, so they may see you. He wasn't calling the attention to the individual. Your good works, and thus glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, interestingly here, in this, uh, this phrase, command the respect of outsiders, it's this word, parapateo. Now, we used this word several weeks ago. We've seen it before, parapateo. And it literally means to imitate. Okay? This whole a parapet, it's, it's to, to, to imitate. Okay? So, it means to walk. Literally means to walk. Some of your versions might say to walk. Does anybody have one that says to walk? Yes, the King James. What does it say? Read it for us. It says that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. Walk honestly towards them. So the idea of how we live our lives, to walk through this life in a way that we are imitating Christ. To walk in a way of imitation. One of the greatest selling books of all time. Well, the Bible is the greatest selling book of all time. You know that, don't you? If you counted all the Bible sales as the greatest selling book, nothing would ever even come close. But the second greatest selling book of all time. Now, I've actually heard somebody challenge this uh, to say that in the modern era it was surpassed by, the, uh, I think, the book uh, that Rick Warren wrote, wrote, uh, Purpose Driven Life. I heard somebody challenge that. I'm not seeing the numbers, though. But the second greatest selling book of all time was a book written, I think, in the 1300s called The Imitation of Christ. The Imitation. It's a daily devotional type book. Written by a lowly, humble monk, German monk, named Thomas Akempis. And he was just writing a diary. And it's an amazing story of his life and his devotion to the Lord Jesus and it, it's, it's just a classic. If you've never read it, you need to read it. The Imitation of Christ. You can pick it up anywhere. It's still in print lots of places. You know, 700-year-old book. Um, and the whole thought is, how can I learn to live and imitate Christ? Um, so we'll spend more with working on your hands. Minding your own business, I think that's important. There are other scriptures that talk about not being a busybody, you know. So, you know, life is challenging enough. We really need to learn how to mind our own affairs. You know, it's so it's so true that when we see problems in others, what we're really doing is the reason we recognize them is because we have that same problem. We are condemned. When we, be careful. That's why Jesus says, be careful how you judge. Because you're going to be judged the same way. Because when we see, well, the reason we recognize others' flaws is because we have those flaws. Who are we to point the finger at others? That's what he's saying here. Mind your own affairs. Christians, if Christians will mind their own affairs, live humble lives walking through this world as they've been taught by Christ and his apostles, and work, work becomes huge. We must work. Idleness is not, uh, is not a good thing. Uh, anything you want to share? Jump right in. Yeah. Got it? Okay, I love your thoughts. Anything you want to share there? Oh, I would. I was looking up the imitation of Christ. Oh, you found Amazon, it. Good, good, good. On Amazon, you can get it for two dollars and fifty cents. Well, there you go. Two dollars and fifty cents. Thank you. If I'm you glad want, you. They have other. You can get leather bound or. But <clears throat> you can get the paperback for two fifty. Get that book, everybody. The Amazon two fifty, the imitation of Christ. It's not very long. It's it's a thin little book. Okay, they're just little short things that that you read through. You can pick one a day and read through it. So good, so good, so powerful. Um, so let's, let's close with this. I want to give you some words of some great, incredible thoughts here. Um, this, this idea of <clears throat> humility and, and work and everything. Um, Basil the Great, a man named Basil the Great, he was Saint Basil. He was a contemporary of this St. John Chrysostom I mentioned so much. Uh, he was the bishop, the archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. One, one of them. Voluminous writings, one of the greatest early teachers of Christianity, Basil, Basil the Great, B-A-S-I-L. He said this, speaking about this verse of this threefold life. Basil said, The Christians should not make a display of dress or shoes, as this is indeed idle ostentation. 
He should use inexpensive clothing for his bodily needs. He should not spend anything beyond actual necessity or for mere extravagance. This is an abuse. He should not seek honor nor lay claim to the first place. Each one ought to prefer all others to himself. He ought not to be disobedient. He who is idle, although able to work, should not eat. We're going to see Paul say those words coming up. And then he finally says this, Moreover, he who is occupied with some task which is rightly intended for the glory of Christ ought to limit himself to the pursuit of work within his ability. There's a lot there. I mean, you could almost study what Basil said in an hour. He may take some time. But did you hear those words about dressing simple, not calling attention to yourself, not being ostentatious? We really struggle with that in our culture, don't we? We really do. And I struggle with it in my life. You know, those of you who know me well know I spent 18 years in the clothing business selling people $2,000 suits. I've repented of that, by the way. Uh, you know, talk about ostentatiousness. How expensive does a suit need to be? Um, and I know there's that, oh, well, hey, if you got the money, it's no big deal. You know, I understand all that. I'm just saying, Jesus lived humbly. Jesus walked among the earth. The scripture tells us in Isaiah, says there was nothing about him that you would call, call your attention to him you, by sight. You know, he wasn't the tallest. He was, in fact, images tell us that, that we have from the Shroud of Turin and others that he was maybe around five foot six. Jesus was not head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and he wasn't this incredibly handsome man, probably, you know, that every woman swooned over. It's not him. We, 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 we don't believe that based on Scripture's teaching and, and historical study. But he was a humble man. He was God made flesh. Come to show us how to live humbly. So, let's let that be a closing thought today. God has come among us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has given us his spirit through his church to dwell within us personally, to teach us how to live as we ought to live. Holy lives set apart for God's use. There's a lot there. Wow. Well, as we close today, let me be mindful to say that I know Faye's brother passed away yesterday. Uh, and I want to remember, have you remember her family in prayer. Just passed away suddenly yesterday. Um, so continue to pray for Sylvia, who is, you know, recovering. And we're really praying she'll be back with us one day. But but thank you for your thoughts. And then I, I think Rhonda has a, a friend special friend. Her, that, um, last night that a friend of ours had a major stroke, and she's 49. Yeah, and so if 49, yeah. Yeah, they sure can be, because they have a lot longer lasting effects. Mm-hmm. Might, might also be my sister, Linda Patterson. Yes. She's got stage 3 kidney disease. I did not know that. We just found out the other day. Wow, okay. And didn't tell us about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Her whole family's had... Well, kidney problems. Her sister has kidney cancer. Her brother has kidney cancer. Her other sister died of kidney cancer. So it's wow. all in the family. But uh, yeah. So she's on a special diet and everything. Okay. Just gonna pray for her. We will. Linda's often been a part of this class in the past. She hasn't been able to come for a while. She was going to come today. Well, let's. Wore out yesterday at the funeral. Sure, that was a hard. Well, let's let's pray. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer, bearing in mind what the Lord is teaching us. I told you in the prayer in the beginning, the be, O Lord, the light of our souls and bodies. There's a, how we live, how we dress, how we act in our bodies. It's important as Christians. So let's uh, thank the Lord for that prayer and thank him now and ask his blessing on these things. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be in study of your word today. We invite your Holy Spirit to be present among us as our ever-present teacher. Take all the things that I've said, Lord, and cover over anything that's wrong and just not let anyone be led astray by it. But you be our teacher and guide us, lead us, direct us, sanctify us. Remember these requests now. May you touch each one according to your precious holy will. And we offer you all these things now in the the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as he forms his spirit within you.